and welcome to The Close Podcast. I'm Cooper Knowlton, joined with uh, Lee Bergstein today. And we are very lucky to have Howard Husick, uh, a senior fellow in domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, join us. Um, Howard's uh, research and work focuses on municipal government, urban housing policy, civil society, and philanthropy. And uh, today we're going to be digging into the uh, recent expiration of the 421A uh, tax subsidy in New York City and um, helping us get our heads around that and what it means. Um, Just quickly as way of background, the 421A subsidy uh, was a tax break where developers who included multifamily residential housing within their projects would get a tax break uh, for 15 to 25 years. Um, It was historically the most costly tax break in New York City, costing somewhere around $1.77 billion annually. Uh, The the goal of the subsidy was to create more affordable housing for New Yorkers. Um, However, when the bill expired uh, and was not renewed earlier this year, many perceived that the cost to the city was too high compared to the number of new units uh, that it created. Um, and now that the subsidy is gone, developers, uh, the, the fear is that developers will no longer be incentivized to build residential units in their development, um, may lead to escalating housing prices, but I think we'll, we'll dig into whether or not all of that is true. Um, so Howard, with all that being said, first off, thank you so much for joining us. And second off, uh, what, what, what did You're I miss? Me. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, is there anything I missed in that description? Any of the key points that, that weren't there? I thought, I thought it was great, Cooper, by the way. I thought it was really good. Very succinct. I would just add that there was a time when Michael Bloomberg was mayor that you could also fulfill the requirements for a 421, not by adding affordable buildings in your own building that you're building, but off-site. That had expired during the de Blasio administration, but it was historically also part of the legislation. So what happened? Why, you know, uh, there's obviously been a lot of articles and conversation about um, why this ended. There have been multiple times where there have been extensions to the program, but um, what changed this time? Why why wasn't it extended? Well, I think it's what Cooper put his finger on, which is that the the cost became so apparent that uh, it started to be viewed as a uh, tax giveaway, tax loophole, choose your term of opprobrium, and uh, that the city was not getting its money's worth. Now, that's kind of built in in a way that these units that were uh, the result of the subsidy were going to be expensive because if you build uh, market rate units uh, in expensive locations, that means that the cost per unit is by definition high. And by subsidizing some of those units, it also means that the market rate units will have to cost more because the developers have to cross-subsidize the 421A units. So those forces combine to push up the price tag. And finally, I think the, the lobbying power of the real estate lobby waned in comparison uh, to those who thought that it was a quote-unquote tax giveaway. Do is is there a fear, or do we do we feel like the the fear that um, with this gone away that there is going to be way less? You know, we we obviously have a housing crisis, an affordability crisis in New York City. Um, is there a fear that with this gone that there is going to be even less um, building of affordable housing within the city? Well, I think that fear is out there among tenant advocates, but I think we have to reflect on the fact that four twenty one a was a Band-Aid 
on an incredibly distorted system. And so all of the distortions in the system, and we can talk about that, combine to make new residential construction very expensive. And 421A was a way to, uh, without addressing the problems of the entire system, to make individual buildings more affordable. This, this was a, a jury rig system for many, many years. Uh, and so one can hope that the demise of 421A will cause uh, uh, City Hall and others interested to take a deep breath and say, well, how can we uh, undistort the property tax system so that we provide incentives, so we don't at least provide disincentives for new residential construction? We need a do-over, and continuing 421A was just continuing some uh, really distorting policies anyway. I guess that that moots my next question because I was going to ask you whether you thought it was a you think it was a good thing that 421A expired. I think you just answered that question. Um, so, you know, what are the underlying issues in your view? What are the underlying issues with the the New York City uh, tax system? And then I guess um, that's going to be a long answer. But the follow up is, if not 421A, then what? What are the fixes? Well, the the, the core problem. Or I'll just tip my hand to the numerous distortions that 421A was addressing. Uh, you know, co-ops and condos on Park Avenue were, were taxed in a tax classification as single-family homes. They had the lowest effective tax rate. That's crazy. Uh, so what we need to do and what we have not been doing is taxing all residential property at market value continually updated. And so if you have a co-op on Park Avenue and it's owned by a very wealthy person and it trades for $50 million, not insane, it should be taxed as if that's what its market value is and it should be one market value metric for all residential property. And gradually, we would stop distorting uh, and pushing up the, the land values in some places because they're 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 not uh, they're being taxed as single-family home districts, and pushing down others because they're classed with properties that are unlike them. So we we need to wipe that out. And Bill De Blasio actually convened a, a tax reform uh, oversight commission and produced a really good report in the waning days of his administration last uh, December. Uh, that propose exactly this kind of approach, tax at market value. And once we start doing that, we'll find that, well, if you build uh, new housing in an area in which land values are relatively low, we won't tax them at a high rate because they're new residential property, which is what we've been doing. And so we just have to start with a blank slate and see what makes sense. And then we can start to, I think, have natural incentives to build when there's demand. I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there. But the first question that comes to mind when you bring this up, because it, it, it seems intuitive, right, when you bring it up, but uh, how feasible is, is it in New York City to take this market value-based approach? Do you, is, is there a path to this actually happening? Well, I... A, a bona fide mayoral commission 
suggested it, the independent budget office, the Furman Center at, at, at NYU and Real Estate Center there have all discussed it in serious terms. Serious people think it's a serious approach. Now, are there political obstacles? Well, yes. Some people's taxes would go up because they're artificially low. So Brownstone, Brooklyn, the taxes would go significantly up. Staten Island, the taxes would go significantly down. And there are other changes. Some percentage of residential property owners would see their taxes go up because they should pay more, because their properties are worth more, and they should not be cross-subsidized by less affluent parts of the city, uh, including non-Brownstone Brooklyn and other areas. Uh, to his great credit, uh, the comptroller of the city now, Brad Lander, uh, has proposed a, a version of this property tax reform. He's the chief financial officer, if you will, of the city. And he used to represent Brownstone Brooklyn in the city council. And I, and I talked to him. I said, you know, your constituents, former constituents, their taxes will go up. Your own taxes will go up because he lives there. He says, I know, but it has to be done. So somebody would have to bite a political billet. That's the implied concern in your question. And that's true. What are the uh, what are the developers pushing for? And in, in, in the absence of 421A, are, are they? Are, I'm sure there's some complaints on their end that this will make building just in general more more complicated within the city. Are there are there reforms that they're specifically advocating for? Well, it wouldn't surprise me if they're working to restore 421A. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't shock me at all. And I think. Do you think there is some possibility that? Of even you know, despite all its flaws, that 421A could come back, kind of in its maybe a slightly different form, but but something something like it. I do think that's possible because you know there there's a small group of developers in New York City. As of right, development is not really a thing in most parts of the city, and so you have a lot of wired developers, and people know their names. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not going to say them because they might be your clients. Uh, and uh, they uh, they like if, the if, there, if there are clients, they're probably not wired in. So I think you're you're probably free to speak uh, speak freely. Well, Vernado <laughs> related, uh, you know, there's people know their names, and they know how they knew how to work that system. They're familiar with it, and so it was in their interest to have lawyers who specialized in 421A because that was a barrier to entry for out-of-town developers, small startup mom-and-pop developers. So I think there's a, there's a strong incentive to try to start you know, waving the flag of, oh, there's not enough affordable housing and 421A is the only way to do it. Uh, I would think that would be their default, frankly. And, and we'll have to see uh, what happens after the gubernatorial election when we come around to the next budget cycle. I mean, a, a more enlightened approach would be to uh, uh, simply make it easier to get uh, uh, building permits, to uh, re-examine the zoning uh, citywide, find out, and this is something the Bloomberg administration did a really good job of, looking at where uh, commercial and industrial zoning has outlived its usefulness, and residential makes sense. Look what happened in 
Dumbo in Brooklyn, now a boom town, had to be rezoned from industrial to residential. $20 million residential units there now. What other places are underzoned in that way or inappropriately zoned as the city changes? Uh, so I think you know, taking a good hard look at what the barriers to development are. I mean, I have my own hobby horses on that, you know, affordable housing construction that requires, uh, 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 you know, union workforces pushes up costs. The city, the city ought to take a deep breath and say, what are all the things that we ask of developers that push up costs? How can we reduce costs? Because that creates an inherent affordability. Go ahead, Lee. No, so I was, I was going to ask. I mean, uh, you're not you're not on here to prognosticate, but let's let's assume that uh, 421A is not renewed in some form or fashion. Obviously, uh, the governor was trying to push through 485W as an alternative that that wasn't passed. Though I, I think there's still some hope that it, that may occur. Um, what what's what is the future, the short and medium term future of New York City? Uh, residential development look like without this abatement in place? Will things change? How will they change? You know, what, what do you expect to see? Well, I think you'll see development that is permitted to occur to occur. In other words, where market rate relatively high density zoning is permitted, I think that developers will go ahead and develop to the high, what they view as the highest and best use of uh, available real estate, uh, including, uh, you know, demolishing and rebuilding on site and all of that kind of thing. Uh, will, will it mean less affordable housing? If you define affordable housing as subsidized housing, then yes, it will mean less subsidized housing. Although the city itself is still in a big way in the direct subsidy business. Uh, Mayor Adams the other uh, last week just cut the ribbon on a, on a project in, 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 the, in the Rockaways, 100% affordable. That means every unit is subsidized by the city's housing preservation development uh, entity uh, and low-income housing tax credits, which are federal. So we'll see... Yeah, we, we, we probably won't see the kind of mixed income requirement fulfilled as much as it would have been under 421A. My personal opinion is that's, that's a kind of a social engineering, but that's, that's my personal opinion. Do you, do you expect, at least in the short term, a, a slowdown in production and, and uh, commensurate um, raising of rents as a result? Well, if there's a supply decline, there, there will look, look, we're seeing a lot of raising of rents for all sorts of reasons. And I think it would be hard to isolate 421A as the proximate cause. Uh, there, there were so many uh, deals made and uh, rent reductions uh, uh, adopted uh, during the teeth of the pandemic that now uh, owners, property owners are trying to recapture some of their lost income. And I think that's why you're seeing rent rebounds, especially in core Manhattan. You're not seeing the same kind of rent rebounds in Bay Ridge and the outer boroughs. 
so it's important not to extrapolate entirely from core Manhattan as to what the trends are going to be. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, in general, you know, there, there, there was a project in Harlem that was going to you know, allow for a number of affordable units. And the city council said, no, it's got to be all affordable. And the developer walked away from that. So as long as the city is making economically unfeasible demands from developers, we will see a, a, a slowdown of uh, new housing. And, you know, I, I, I take the, the traditional housing economist approach, which is to say that as supply of any kind increases, you have a filtering effect that would lower costs at other levels. And so it's, I've always thought it misguided that, that uh, uh, there's a demand that uh, we have specific housing for specific income groups built. Uh, high cost housing, uh, high rent housing uh, may seem to serve only the wealthy, but because those same potential customers are not going somewhere else, other housing becomes less expensive. So you can't rule that possibility out either. That is new market rate, high end construction, which is the course of least resistance now, post 421A. New high end construction, it's the course of least resistance. That could indirectly uh, lower costs elsewhere as well. But you can expect some uh, demagoguery about uh, the successors to 157 and 157th and other, you know, showcase projects like that. You you sort of alluded to this earlier, but if this if there were to be a change, um, it would likely not happen until you said after the the gubernatorial election, right? It's probably right. the next year or two. This is this is likely kind of the the, the status quo. Well, I think so. I mean, look, hope springs eternal. I, as I mentioned before, the comptroller Brad Lander is making it a signature political issue to reform the property tax code. Uh, you know, I'm sure he sees himself as a potential mayor. He'll try to raise his profile on this issue. Uh, you, you, you can't rule out the possibility that the distortions of the existing system might somehow uh, persuade people who are paying too much in taxes that they're paying too much in taxes and uh, w would like to see the system change. That will take leadership, though. Otherwise, you're right, status quo. Yeah. Are, are there other cities um, that, that you can point to that are kind of using this model uh, and that New York City could look to um, if they were going to adopt this, let's call it, you know, market value-based approach? And then I have one other question about that. Um, which is, you know, what what is market? So if we were to if we were to transition to this model, um, how 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 would you assess what the market value is of of a property? Are you is is it appraisal based? Is there some other basis on which you're determining market? Well, uh, most jurisdictions in the in the United States use a market based approach to assessing the value of properties. So the, 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 the outlier is New York. And most, uh, for instance, in Massachusetts, every three years there has to be a complete revaluation of all residential property by state law. 
And now in terms of how you assess it, uh, uh, local assessors around the country, including in New York State, know how to do this. It's based on comparable sales. It's a tried and true, very established formula. And so uh, you, you would look at, you know, what sales have occurred on Park Avenue, which, what, what sales have occurred on Coney Island Avenue, what sales have occurred on Tote Hill and Staten Island, and uh, use that as the basis for new assessed valuations of comparable properties. Uh, it, it's it's really not rocket science at all. It's standard practice around the United States of America. All right. Well, Lee, I don't know if you have any further questions. I feel like this is maybe a good place to stop. But no, I, I had I, I did have one more question. So please, uh, please uh, keep going. I'm just having fun now. <laughs> just good. getting started. Okay. Just getting warmed up. Um. So you know, again, back to the prognostication game, which I know is not your your primary uh, focus. It, it, really, but, it really isn't. I mean, I I don't know who's paying which lobbyists and how much, but you know, it's it's not anybody on this call quite yet. Uh, <laughs> But um, so let's suppose that, that New York City uh, made this shift, which I think for all the reasons that you outlined, there, there are certain practical political realities that, that probably prevent it, but who knows? Um, you know, how, how would that shift, in your view, affect the New York City real estate market? What would be kind of the one or two biggest impacts right away if there was that type of shift? Well, right now, new residential property is assessed at the highest possible uh, rate. Uh, it, we, in effect, punish the construction of new residential property. And so if we stop doing that, if new residential property were assessed at its assessed market value based on sales of units, units in the Bronx are not going to be as costly as units on 1 West 57th. Uh, I, I think you'd see more construction. I think inevitably you would see more construction. New York City would start to, look, if New York City housing market is to become functional, normal, dynamic, it has to sweep away so many things. The, 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 the one-off, this, this panoply of one-off tax breaks, rent regulation, which prompts people to stay in their homes for forever because they think they have such a good deal. So turnover is exceptionally low in New York City. Our housing market is frozen. You know, 180,000 units of public housing on sites that could be put to much higher and better uses and create more and better housing. So much has to be questioned and undistorted, reformed that uh, you know, a visionary mayor would say, what would it take to make our housing market normal? More like Houston's, where units keep up with demand and the city grows and you don't have anybody talking about, we have such a housing crisis in Houston. Nobody says that. By the way, Houston has no zoning at all, just deed restrictions and such as that. And so, We've so distorted the market in so many ways with the, you know, uh, just so much subsidized housing, so much rent-regulated housing, so many distortions in people's personal decisions as a result that 
we have a perennial housing crisis. Right. Most cities don't have a housing crisis. We never don't have one. It's it's interesting though that kind of what what is able to spur change is is the expiration of of something like 421A, not the you know there's there's no consensus building, there's no grand plan, there's no new leadership that's coming in and coming up with some you know starting to to really reform this. The only thing that's that's making a significant change is just the the plan was supposed to expire on this date and they couldn't get their act together to do anything and it ex- it, it expired. It's kind of kind of a wild commentary on the whole the whole mess. Yeah. That the it, it did expire for a reason, and the reason suggests political possibility. It, the reason it expired is because it caught the attention of journalists and uh, advocates that a lot of money was going to extremely well-off developers, and something about that didn't seem right to people. Uh, now, well-off developers should develop and earn a profit. That happens to be my personal opinion. But subsidizing all sorts of construction, I think people rightly said, something doesn't seem quite right. It seems like you need connections to develop housing in New York. Something didn't seem quite right to them about that. And the price tag of 421A is what suggested that analysis to them. And so it, it wasn't just a technicality. It was an indication that there's a kind of a illness in the system that needs to be better diagnosed and then uh, uh, remedied. My my take was far more cynical, but <laughs> I mean, I think look, there's there's clearly something. Uh, there is some type of sickness. I think I think you know, uh, differing minds can disagree as to what that is and the best way forward on it. But um, I think. Uh, having the conversation is a good thing and, and trying to figure out, um, how to make New York city, uh, more equitable and more accessible. Um, whatever your approach, I think there's, there's value to be had there. And more dynamic. You want to encourage new building, new building provides more housing for everybody. It provides new retail for everybody. When every construction project is a one-off deal, that's not a healthy city. I, I am heartened by the fact that uh, Comptroller Lander, who I agree with about almost nothing else with, you know, I'm kind of a center-right conservative. He's a pretty far-left progressive. But we agree that the property tax system needs to be reformed, and we pretty much agree on how to do it. So that tells me there's some potential for change there. We can maybe, he'll, maybe he'll take you into his administration, Howard, when... Uh... When he's when he's mayor, <laughs> maybe <laughs> diversity of diversity of thought is always a good thing in any administration. So uh, we'll see. Um, well, we appreciate your time. Um, and this is an incredibly incredibly informative conversation, and uh, you know, hopefully, when uh, whatever the next piece of legislation that touches on this issue is passed, we could have you back on and we could talk about it. I would look forward to that. Thank you so much for your time, Howard. Really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thank Thank you, guys. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, and Knowlton on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.